0: Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund.
1: And I'm Eric Bonn, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders?
0: Sure, let's do it.
1: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website a financial controls matrix, Finance 101 for startups, contingency toolkits, tax and marketing calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit BirkelandAssociates.com slash hustle. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash pitches Hey there, listeners. Hung
2: Pham here, executive producer of First Pitches. On this episode, Eric, Lolita, and I debrief our interview with last week's special guest founder and share our thoughts, insights, and reactions. If you haven't heard last week's interview yet, I highly recommend you do so. And now, on to the show.
1: Hey, everyone. We got Lolita, Hung, and myself, Eric, here. We just wrapped up a great conversation with Aaron Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Box. So many great insights, I think, from his early days at Box and what he thinks about the future of uh, the remote work, life post-COVID. Uh, Lolita, you know, just starting with you, what were some general reactions coming out of that interview today?
0: I mean, I, I, Aaron is such a, like fresh air type of person to have on a podcast because he just has so much energy and he's really focused, but at the same time has so many thoughts running through, through his head. I could just see it, but it was really awesome to hear him talk through his experience in becoming an entrepreneur and how he was really a serial entrepreneur. And he just took it one step at a time with lots of experiments. Um, I don't think we, we often hear of that of, uh, people who start off in middle school, high school with the experiments. And they're just like, Hey, just let Friday night, let's, let's come up with a startup idea every single Saturday. Um, and I think that was really refreshing because it gives you this different perspective of the beginning of, of, uh, entrepreneur journey. One question I, I, I am sad we didn't get to ask him is, um, this concept of, is entrepreneurship something that we're kind of born with or mm. something that we learned? Because I've heard this, this this topic of conversation and, and some folks have said, you know, some people are made for entrepreneurship and others are not. And just hearing Aaron's journey, I, I really wish we could have asked him because he does seem to have this very entrepreneurial DNA from a very young age. And there are some of us who got started a little bit later on
1: well let's let's turn that question to uh, one of my favorite founders of all time Lolita Taub. so Lolita i mean wh- what's your belief? Is this a nature or nurture kind of thing
0: oh man that's a hard one I... Is your question uh... <laughs> 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 I know but, it, but but it's it's a difficult one because so if i if I reflect back on on my personal journey, I remember I was something like five or six years old, and i i was selling these napkin made, uh, earrings to my friends for pennies. And I was just like, don't you want these like really awesome? Cause I was using, um, I don't know if you guys ever bought those napkins that were colorful. I think they were really like a thing when yeah. we were younger. Totally. And, and so I would cut them out and you couldn't even attach them, but I was selling them to my friends as earrings. And so I got like pennies and that was my first you know, entrepreneurial thing. Whereas like I think of my sister and I don't think she ever, she baked a lot. She liked baking and that's her thing. I don't know. Like, is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, is it is it something where maybe some of us are more, more risk averse than others? I don't know. What do you think, Eric and Hung? Like, I want to hear your stories.
1: You know, for myself, it's really interesting because I'd never had any goal of ever becoming a founder at all. When I went to college, I wanted to be a writer, so I majored in English for a while. And then it was a little bit too much reading, so I switched to social (laughs) sciences, which is slightly less reading, but a a lot of the writing that I enjoyed. Uh, And for me, I think when I look at my career, they're just very specific problems that I wanted to solve uh, that were just passionate to me. And you know, over time, I kind of learned that. Uh, actually, this is really fun transparency. I get feedback from Lolita as well as Hung that I'm too dominating. And, and, and like, I can understand actually that at times I am kind of a difficult to work with, which is why I like working in small teams. So, you know, I just finally couldn't really handle working in certain kinds of environments. So like becoming a founder just felt more and more natural to me over time. But even when I was in the process of building companies, I never felt like a founder. I was just like, okay, you know, I'm coming in, in the morning. You know, we're going to figure out which problems to solve and then hopefully do our work and then go home, you know, hopefully at a reasonable hour today, and then we'll lather, rinse, repeat, and just sort of grind it out, right? Um, so it 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 felt like a, it, it never really felt like there's anything too special about that other than just, there's a problem that I just really want to solve. Um, Hong, what about yourself? You've you've been a founder in a number of different companies at this point.
2: Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of both. Um a lot of founders I know who are founders, they always have a story of when they were young doing something, right? And I think at that age, you're not really thinking of entrepreneurship. It's just like, Hey, this is something no one's really thinking about. I think for me, I remember in high school, um, seeing all the athletes in my school have these big Ziploc bag of candy mm. and they're going around selling candy to fundraise for like their uniforms. And I was just thinking, I can do that too. Um, and I was working part time at um, a Rite Aid. So I had like really amazing employee discounts. So like, I would buy my own candy at like 10% above cost and then put them in a bag, amazing. go to school, sell it, make like 20 bucks a week. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Um, but that to me, I wasn't thinking in terms of like entrepreneurship. It was just like, like doing something no one's really looking at. And like, so you have this like secret that n- nobody knows about, but you're doing it. And it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, actually. So, um, I, I wanted to do that too, Hung sell candy. And I, I wanted to go to, I think at the time it was in Costco, it was Sam's club. I think that was mm-hmm. the popular one. Yeah, And my friend and I, we talked about having a candy business because it was like, you know, sneaky, you know, black market stuff in middle school that we wanted to give the kids the candy they wanted and they didn't sell it at the candy store. And, and so my friend and I talked about it. My parents were like, no, you can't focus on making money. You have to focus on, on school. And so they never let me be part of this. But the one time I did get, um, I, but, I, but I helped my friend, by the way, and she, like you, hung was making money, and I was just so jealous and had the FOMO. Um, but the opportunity that my parents did give me, and I loved, I wanted to do this so badly, was to sell chocolate bars. So I went to Mm. public school and to raise money for schools, we, I think that was the purpose of it. Anyway, we were selling chocolate bars and you'd make some sort of commission or maybe you made chocolate bars. I don't even remember, but I remember wanting to sell the most chocolate bars and I remember just like being like, mom, I have to do this. And it's for my education. Like this is so that I can have like the nice books that you want, uh, want us to have in my school. And this is going to help the school buy these. And so I convinced her that it was a good idea. And I basically had all of my mom's friends sell for me. And that was like my like like, it was great. I was like the top selling chocolate bar person.
1: <laughs> this, uh, Makes a lot of sense given your your role in leading sales right now at your company, uh, motivating you know people around you to towards a shared aim. I'm starting to see some. Uh, the dots being connected lolita in your history there
0: you know maybe i haven't i hadn't really thought about it that way but you know what here's what i want to say though i don't think uh that it's like uh some of us have it and some of us don't i think it might just be like a muscle where if you work it out enough and it's your thing and you want to lean into it you're just going to keep persisting and it's going to be one of these things where it's just mm-hmm. you're just like okay we're going to try to address a problem and we're going to try to start a business. And if it works, we're going to continue. If it doesn't, we're going to kill it or we're going to pivot. And it's just, I think sometimes is that something you want to do and is it accessible to you? Because, uh, starting a business, uh, although it's so much more accessible today than it was, you know, when we were kids, um, in terms of a tech company and, and, and in any case, um, I, I think there, there is a question of, do you have the capacity to start a business because you may not have access to the resources to buy the aws hosting of mm-hmm. your whatever or you know things like that and so i do think that there's a barrier to entry even though it's a lot lower than before not everyone has the capacity to to go into business because They might need to pay bills and they just cannot focus on their entrepreneurial itch because they have to provide for their families.
1: You know, I'm glad that you're raising this Lolita because this harkens to, I think, conversations that you, me and Hung have had in the past around culture ad, right? So when the three of us came together to put together first pitches as this project, we fully recognized that we were coming from really different perspectives, right? Just in terms of how we approach our own businesses, Uh, I think our values are pretty aligned. That's one thing that intersects. Like we're good humans mostly. Uh, But like, uh, uh, you know, like just the way that we solve problems and our styles are really different. And that's something that we want to celebrate. Right. So uh, I guess like to add to that comment that you just shared, it's that founders look like everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's like multiple ways to be super successful with your own style. Like if, if you're, someone that is more consensus oriented, um, you know, and want to like focus on that kind of team development, you can build a billion dollar business. If you're going to be someone that's like more direct, kind of like a, what are those ENTJs or whatever those Myers-Briggs that are like more direct kind of profiles, that's successful too. Uh, but but there's like endless permutations and they're all the right okay. ones, right? Yeah. So for the listeners out there, like that's, I, uh, you know, someone like Aaron, you know, and he's a really good guy, from what I could tell, uh, just from following him through these years. Uh, but you know, it's easy to sort of strike him as like a tropey kind of CEO, you know, like white male, very confident, and so forth. Uh, but that's just one version. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is good to remind ourselves about.
0: I I like that. I like that to remind ourselves that that we need to celebrate different types of approaches, different types of entrepreneurs, and also to think about that we may all start in different places Mm -hmm. with different Mm -hmm. resources. He was I mean. It sounds, it sounds like he hustled a lot to get that first 80K, but he was able to put 2K down, right? That's what he yeah. said. And his friend was able to put 10, 15K. And not everybody Oops. has that access. And that's, that is- that's definitely huge. And, and I think you bring up a really good point about not um, saying, hey, this is, this is the archetype that you need to follow. And if you don't have these particular backgrounds and checkboxes, then you, you won't become a, the founder of a company like Box.
1: That's right. Um, There was a question I was dying to ask him, but also equally you two, and actually came to the very end of the conversation when he was giving his advice about how you sort of think about the exciting problems to solve as a founder. He mentioned tailwind, you know, other market conditions that show that You're working on the right kind of trend disruption. I guess uh, my interpretation of that was, uh, you know, are you, are you working on something that can be like a defense tool, kind of a business of our time that you could be in the lead for and focus, you know, just being hyper-focused on doing the one thing, right. Or the, or the critical few, the tailwind part of it is a question that I have. And Lolita, I'd love to start with you about it, because he was talking about how in the early days of box, the macros, that drove the tailwind with, Mo- with Boxer obvious things like internet getting faster, internet usage is growing, like people's need mm-hmm. for storage is growing. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. But as an investor, Lolita investor, you're often probably uh, approached by founders who have a similar kind of story. And I'm sure you're asking yourself a question of like, but is this the right time? Mm-hmm. Right? Like is the timing, right to actually start, are you way ahead of it? Are you at the right moment? Are you behind it? Uh, how do you sort of think about his answer, but also just like the time element when you find founders in kind of a similar spot?
0: Well, you know, I, again, really good question, Eric. Uh, I, I think well, that, I need you to
1: teach me to I do mean, my job, I, by I, the way. I,
0: I know, Eric. You're like, so Lolita, what do you think? What in is this situation? Your, your magical crystal <laughs> ball that you have. Sure, sure. Uh, We're all learning. I, I personally think that we as investors need to be really humble about our ability to to see the future. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes we can get really caught up in what does the Gartner chart tell us about what the waves are we're riding and and what isn't and what's going to hit what, what's the maturity of a wave, you know, or or not? And I think sometimes we can become an echo chamber within our industry and consider, here's the way we're writing right now and that's the one that we're going to write. And, and I think we could be right sometimes. Uh, but the humility in, in stepping back whenever we look at a founder that has this other idea, I actually, when when I feel like, oh this is absolutely like not going to work, I actually think those are the best founders mm. because it makes me think about um, it makes me think about, well, that's typically the kind of investments you want to make as a VC, the ones where you're just like, no, that's a wild, dumb idea um, versus, oh, yeah, I see how everything aligns right now. And so I actually personally like it when and I'm really curious when someone's talking about the trends that they're seeing and 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 me having a reaction of like a reflex of saying, oh, that's not going to work for me to like stop and say, actually, this is really interesting, because it's making me think about mm. it. And, and that humility, that's kind of part of my process, Eric, to be honest with you, because otherwise, we're just writing a, a echo chamber.
1: Well, uh, there's actually kind of a two-way humility to check here, right? So I love your response, by the way. And, but uh, let's say that you're faced with founder Eric, who's just like, these are the trends, <laughs> Lolita. And you're like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm 100% sure everyone else is wrong, right? Like, for me when I encountered evil Eric, this persona, like that, that's like a huge turnoff of like, I mean, okay. Having strongly held opinions is great. Right. But, uh, I mean, is this person coachable? I mean, like you can come off as like an asshole. Do I really want to spend time? And there's a lot of founders that kind of like turn me off in this, in this sense, not a lot maybe, but, uh, the occasion that, uh, or I'm like, this person might be right, but putting up with this attitude, <laughs> Of righteousness. is going to be really tough.
0: Well, I, you know, I think you're, you're walking into this like great area, right? Because there mm. are some founders where I think, ah, oh, is this going to really work? Maybe not. So it, I'm interested. Um, but the personalities to your point can be so wide. Some folks are like, this is what it is. And so you're in or you're out. And, yeah. and that spectrum of that kind of founder, I am very turned off. And even if I think it might be a bad idea, that could actually be a good idea to invest in. I personally, um, in in particular when I'm wearing an angel hat, I'm just like, I just don't need to deal with that. Relationships between investors and founders are so long. And I wanna be able to think of myself, I, I don't know why, but I always think of, I picture the founder that I'm thinking about investing in and me getting caught in an elevator, the lights are off and this person is farting in my face because they ate something wrong. And I'm wondering, like, do I want to smell their fart and, like, be there in this, like, elevator for hours? And if if the answer is yes, I tend to be like, okay, cool. I think this is someone I want <laughs> uh,
1: We are going to have to use that as our key soundbite, uh, Hung, for the promotion of this episode. It is fire that Lolita is spitting right now. Uh, no, but I think point, it's, a, it's a pretty serious point, actually, Lolita, you're, you're raising. And I, I, I definitely hear it. I mean, Hong. Like your response to this question too around timing. Like you're, you were more recently, I think, in the zone of uh, ideating on ideas. You know, as we're putting together our first pitches. What did you think about? um, I guess uh, Aaron's perspective on just uh, the tailwind thing, and like, and then I guess our kind of curiosity around how do you think about timing as well and trends?
2: Yeah, I think. You know, just from our conversation just now, it made me think a lot about our episode with Michelle Zetlin. Um, mm. So for our listeners, if you haven't heard it, definitely check it out. But she did talk about, like, when you're building an idea, like, pick something that's huge, right, versus a, an area where you know it front and back. And for her, she says, you know, those are the kind of ideas with, that that are worth working on. But at the same time, it's okay to, to say, you know what, I don't know what happens next. Um. So I, I think, you know, to answer your question, I think there's some truth to that. Like with me and, and Culture Summit, when I had the idea for it, it was in 2000, I want to say 13. And it really came out of my own frustration with just being unhappy at work. Mm-hmm. And remember talking to event organizers in the space and kind of pitching them on the idea. And, and everyone told me it wouldn't work. Like the whole idea of, of people going to learn about culture is too fluffy and uh, they, they told me, you know, what? don't expect to make any money. And if you break even, that's like the best thing you could ask for. Uh, but I just knew deep down, like, come on, I'm I'm so unhappy at work. I know I can't be the only one in the world with this issue. And I just pushed forward because I just not so much. It wasn't a tailwind thing, but more more because it was such a personal um, challenge I had with my, my situation that I knew I had to, mm-hmm. you know, just go for it because there just had to be other people out there.
0: Yeah, you know, actually, I also thought of Michelle Satlin when, when Aaron was talking about disruption versus innovation. And what came to my mind was Michelle's words about if you're going to go out there and solve a problem, make sure it's like, and actually even Sid, in in our episode, an interview with Sid, he talked about, you know, don't think about something so gradual, gradual shifts, but what is this thing where you can really make a huge difference, make a dent in the industry and just thinking, thinking big, I think that has definitely been a pattern in in our conversations. And Aaron, I think uh, definitely highlighted that using the terminology of disruption versus innovation. And, and I think it just goes back to, is your company is the problem you're solving um, something that you're solving in a way where it's a gradual improvement, or is it going to be an essential shift and a shift that's in parallel with the needs of the market. Um, I think that's, I mean, here, here we are right uh, with, with Zoom. We're using Zoom and Zoom has been able to ride the wave of the COVID and the you know <laughs> work from home um, and, and having students like actually have class and enabling that. And so I think there's so much to be said about if you're gonna go big, go big or go home. Uh, is is one of the things. What I also thought was really interesting was his his um, uh, Aaron's thought on and recommendation for founders to be really focused. So, which was I thought was really interesting because initially he had all these ideas and was exploring all these different types of businesses, but then he got laser focused with Box, or at least this is how I, I I see it. And and this notion of being really focused. The thing that came to mind is yes. However, if you're an underestimated founder, you may not be able to be a hundred percent focused because maybe you have to have a side hustle Mm. to make your, your, your startup work. There are so many people, not just underestimated founders, but also underestimated investors who are just like, Hey, we're just trying to be in the game, but we also have bills to pay and family to take care of. So when when we talk about focus, I think there needs to be like this disclaimer of, yes, be as focused as you can, but also understand that for some folks, that's not going to be a luxury. I, I think it, it ultimately ends up being a privilege to be able to be fully focused on just one thing. That,
1: so let's let's actually elevate that a little bit. And by the way, uh, Hong and Lolita were, were referring to Michelle Zetlin, co-founder of Cloudflare. And Sid Viswanathan, uh, co-founder of Truepill, amazing episodes uh, that uh, <laughs> I don't know by the time this thing drops uh, whether it's released or not, but definitely look for it. Uh, those are some great shows, along with the one that we're discussing today. So yesterday, Lolita, you and I were kind of uh, uh, either subtweeting at each other in very positive ways, or just, or actually literally tweeting at each other about this exact same issue on focus, right? So we're, we're, there's a thread that was kicked off, I think by. Gil Hernandez uh, he runs a fund mm-hmm. I' never met him before he sounds awesome where he shared that as a microfund manager he is still taking contract construction jobs early in the morning in New York City to pay the bills sleeping on the couch and then running his uh, his fund you know during the day as the Pacific time zone wakes up harkens very close I think to Arlen Hamilton founder of backstage capital's journey when she was at times even like like homeless, sleeping in SFO airport, really hustling her way through as she was getting her first checks in. And uh, I, I hear you, which is uh, focus is indeed a privilege. Um, and, uh, but that said, like, you know, this is something that like is, is one of the harder discussions I have at Hustle Fund these days, which by the way, we're actively solving, but I don't have anything to announce publicly just yet, which is when it comes to part-time founders, right? Um, So I started as a part-time founder for my first job. I spent three and a half years building a company on the side because I needed the income. I had a job, a great job at Intuit uh, and since a rotational program, still recommend that as a fresh college grad. And, uh, you know, I was building up my business as as quickly as I could, but eventually it took me about three and a half years. And um, I guess if 38-year-old Eric today in 2020 were to meet 23-year-old Eric back then, uh, 15 years ago it'd be i can't i can't fund you because like you're part-time uh a lot of our limited partner agreements and standard vc funds it's actually really difficult to deploy capital into a part-time team for uh a, because full-time actually produces some level of de-risk in the eyes of like traditional venture right uh, again these are things that i'm we're actively trying to solve but it's actually a big blind spot i think in this industry um so i mean how, what kinds of things lately have you been doing to coach part-time founders? Because they actually do dis- like disproportionately represent a huge rank and file of less privileged people. No, no less talented. Let's be clear about that. But they have a longer journey ahead, just like Gil does and being able to get to hundred percent focus.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I am a product of this situation too. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I do many things. Um, but, and so to that, I say this. I, When I talk to founders, I sympathize and I empathize and I'm compassionate about it. And I definitely know because I personally do it myself that you can be focused and, and contribute to your company and build it and do things while having side hustles. And in fact, I, I believe that you can tell who has that grit, that determination and that commitment when you can see people actually consistently um, delivering, even when they have multiple things, because in fact, they're putting so much, when we talk about skin in the game, right? We, we talk about de-risking deals when you see founders uh, putting in money or, you know, whatever it, it is. And I think um, there needs to be a narrative change when we hear of founders um, having side hustles, the reasons for it. Now, look, if, if you have the privilege and you're working on multiple things and there's no tie to it, I think you look at that on one, one, um, one-on-one case basis. Um, but if you have founders where you know that they have financial responsibilities and it's just not viable viable to to do both their business as well as sustain their financial responsibilities, for me, I'm just like, look, we got. We have to do what we have to do. And so, if you have to do that side hustle, in fact, I've recommended um, founders consider doing consulting, speaking engagements, um, doing a newsletter, whatever it may be that's in their vein, in their in their zone of genius, to make some money, so that they're not just. Um, you know, going through life really is struggling financially because it, it, some, you know, and Gil's a great example of this. Um, you don't want founders just sleeping on a couch and feeling like, you know, this person has a financial responsibilities to their family, but we're telling them, no, I can never invest in you because you have financial responsibilities and you're, you, you know, you're, you're doing construction work in the morning and and then running a fund later. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. And I actually really respect and and love to see the hustle and founders who are being really scrappy and resourceful. That's how I see it. I And I actually see that as de-risking. Um, but it does take, like, I think you have to really look at the founder and, and ask yourself, are they doing it because they want to or because they have to? And how mm. are they balancing out? And having that one-on-one conversation, how are you going to make this work? And being really transparent. That's it. Eric, what do you think about Aaron giving up 25% of his company in exchange Um, for 80K?
1: Holy smokes. So, uh, you know, I took a note here. And for those who can see my, I don't know if you can see it's probably really terrible, but it says 300K with the big box behind it, right? This is me writing on the show notes that Hunga provided, which... uh, Big hat tip to you, Hong. Like he wrote 11 pages of research for me and Lolita to benefit from for today's interview. Amazing stuff. So uh, yeah, Aaron, just to recap, as Lolita just said, uh, put together an $80,000 round, $300,000 post-money valuation for his very, very first angel round that he had to scrape together. And it sounded ridiculously difficult to do. So lots of props for all the hustle to get that that capital together, even though it seems relatively small. It's probably a big deal. Uh, but in the process selling about a quarter of your cap table, I put out like a, a a tweet storm out about this a few months ago, Lolita, that, you know, you and I of engaged with, which is, um, uh, or I think it was a video even of, of like, I don't think it's a good idea for founders at the seed stage to ever sell more than 25% of your cap table before your series a. And the reason is non-obvious, um it's a little bit too much of dilution you're taking. And therefore you're leaving less and less room for your downstream investors, your series A investors, your series B investors uh, to come in and support you because they're going to look around and say like, this is a messy cap table. I either have to help this founder recap, which is a really difficult process of usually watering down uh, every one of your earlier de- uh, investors, or it's just too messy. I'm just going to walk away and work on Hung's business, which is an equally good founder and a different problem that has a clean cap table. So that was a massive red flag when I saw that he had sold so much. And it's remarkable, actually, that he was able to overcome that. My, I, I don't know what the, the context was behind what happened next, but he clearly was able to solve it Uh, so, uh, but here's where I, where I would like contradict, like, I think he did a bad thing back then, which was, you got to do what you got to do per the discussion we just had Lolita. So uh, I'm a little bit conflicted. Did you have any strong reactions, Lolita Hung?
0: Yeah. So my, my reaction was like, whoa, that is a lot. The same, the
1: same. And, and I oh, was yeah. just
0: like, I wish I would have, I would have been part of this 80K round.
1: Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> right. Do the whole thing <laughs> I mean, at this point.
0: <laughs> so, so I had those two reactions. I was like, wait, why I wish I would have like given like even 5k would have been amazing. Um, but on the other side, I was just like, wow, that is Terrible. And I we, we didn't get to ask him, but I would have loved to hear what his journey was because he did give up so much of his um, equity right up front and, and how he dealt with it, to your point, Eric, in subsequent rounds of funding. Um, I'm sure the IPO made up more than made up for for this, but oftentimes founders don't get to that IPO level or that billion dollar valuation. And when you're giving up so much equity, it just feels like um, whether the founder realizes or not. I think it, it detracts uh from the incentive to work really hard on your company if you know mm. you're so diluted from the start. Mm, that, that'd that, be a
2: good question to ask. That too.
0: you're gonna you're gonna work so hard and then and then you're not gonna get paid. And then you're just like, wow, I just ate ramen, slept on a couch, and and didn't have a job because my investor told me I couldn't have a job. And and now I'm making like, you know, pennies on, on the dollar of, of what this company's exit is. Uh, I think, you know, I think Aaron was really lucky, but for most founders, this is not something that happens. And, And a lot of the time, what I see is founders sell too much of their equity. And at the end, they're, they're working at a company that the outcome for them financially is not, I don't know, is it worth it at that point when you give up so much of your equity? I don't know. Hung, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too.
2: Um, So I was typing the notes and I as soon as I heard that, I I just kind of bolded that statement. Um, I wonder if it's one of those situations where it's more like, what choice do I have, right? If I don't Hmm. take this check, I have nothing. So is it better to have something versus nothing? Um, I'm sure in Aaron's case, he can look back and say, well, you know, it worked out. I have no regrets. But uh, I don't know. I don't know for, for founders, you know, like, do I take this and continue my dream or or do I not take it because it's, it's bad terms and you know I don't know what to do next
0: I, I, think, I think we're yeah like you're, ahead,
1: yeah thanks I mean like yeah I think we're we're saying the same thing right I mean like uh I've been in that situation too where I'm out of money I'm totally desperate I'm crying feel positioned in the office couch of just like where am I going to come up with this capital and you know I would take a crazy predatory deal for capital at that moment. And um, I think the fact that he survived, you're right. Like at, at the very end of this journey, like uh, it was a successful outcome. I think he probably did well personally as well. Um, but it, it's, uh, I think that that is the lesson though, which is just like, at least be aware of what the consequences would be for accepting these kinds of terms. By the way, I just did some quick math uh, and lo- before I let you, Lolita, sort of uh, follow up on hung. So assuming that there's a 25% purchase of the cap table at that point, a $300,000 valuation across four investors, I'm gonna say that maybe like they were diluted down to like 5% by the time there's IPO. So pretty substantial. So that's $150 million, you know, that that $80,000 investment uh, turned into for each of those four investors that works out to be about $37, $38 million oh, wow. for a $20,000 investment. Uh, math is amazing. But Lolita, why don't you take the last word on that one?
0: Ah, uh, Well, I, I mean, again, if I could have invested, that would have been great. I, I I, think what I would like to leave founders who are listening to this with is, look, it, it's definitely a gamble. If you ne- You need to do what you need to do. So recapping what both of you said, uh, but I'd like to highlight that if it is an option to continue bootstrapping and to get the terms that that allow you to hold on to some of this equity and control so that you can grow it out and you can mm. really re- re- reap the benefits of your hard work and your life, uh, I'd say do that if, if that is an option. I understand it's a luxury uh, most times, uh, but to just blindly say, yes, okay, I'll take this. Uh, I think sometimes founders do end up doing that. And I just want to remind folks to, to really think about it because I have talked to founders where I asked them, do you have to take this money right now? And I have heard the answer. Well, no, we could go a little bit longer and maybe we could actually finance this next thing. And I say, maybe that's something for you to consider, uh, versus taking predatory, um, terms so just something to to keep in mind founders who are listening
1: um so i think we're gonna have to wrap up pretty soon but really quick lightning round lolita then hung and then myself because i will have the benefit of asking a question <laughs> is uh, any any final takeaway of of impressions you heard from today's conversation with Aaron that you want to uh share with our listeners
0: uh gosh can i go last can yeah
1: go Hong, do you go, go first go,
2: go. <laughs> uh, so my impression of Aaron is when like the product meets the hype. Um, so when I was doing my research, I mean, there's tons of content on Aaron out there. Yeah. And even in our, our prepping, you know, we shared a lot of notes and talked about them. So I had an expectation of like what to expect. And, and I think he delivered. Um, there was a moment, I think, early on when he signed on, we did some warm-up talk and the sense I got was like, he was just trying to, you know, let's get this started. I've, I've got to go. Uh, but once you broke him down, Eric, with your, with your wit and humor, it just made for a really great interview.
0: I think that was just and the way a compl- you closed. The, yeah. The way the, you
2: closed too was genius. So that yeah.
0: Was. <laughs> I, I love that. This is all compliments to, yeah. to Eric. You did such a good job of making this a really fun, fun interview. Um, one thing I would say, okay, I'll have something to say about Aaron. Um, what I really loved about Aaron's conversation with us is just his ability to be so transparent about his journey and just saying like, Hey guys, like it's cool. If you go and try things and they don't work. And then you actually just have to do the work, do the homework, pay attention to trends, keep reading, keep understanding what's happening and, and keep a pulse on the market. And instead of being married to your preconceived notions of what could and and, and can't work to really listen to the market and say, okay, if if this is the the direction the market is going to go, let's, we need to really consider it and do it. And I think that I, I loved his answer as to why he ended up in enterprise and he was the last one, mm. right? he said to, 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 um, be convinced of going the enterprise route and being, having that awareness and, and just going for it. I think I really appreciated it from him also because I think B2B enterprise stuff is sexy.
1: Again, Lolita dropping amazing sound bites for the promo of today's uh, video <laughs> later on. Um, great thoughts, guys. Uh, I guess my closing thought is closer aligned, actually, to Hung what you said, which is, you know, uh, at the top of the call, Lolita, uh, Hung, and I, you know, we we asked a question to, uh, to Aaron, and we asked us of every guest of just like, is there something that you want to leave your listeners with? And often we give them sort of like an option for. You know, a message you want to send the founders or something around your business that you want us to kind of hype up a little bit because it's really cool and new. And he, he seems to be the real deal when it comes to be motivated about paying it forward, right? Just with his time and like his expertise and so forth. And I found it really refreshing that he didn't really have any agenda. About like what the desired outcome of this thing is, other than to just have a good conversation with us and hopefully teach us and our listeners something. So, Aaron, if you're listening to this debrief, we're really grateful for that generosity today. Um, well, Lolita Hung it has been another fun debrief with you for our listeners. We've been talking to or talking about Aaron Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Box who also is the failed co-founder and CEO of this hilarious business called Zizap, Z-I-Z-A-P, <laughs> that we talked about in an interview. If you want more context, you have to listen to the actual interview. Um, but always guys, always fun to chat with you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hong Fam. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at Early Seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now gsfutures.vc and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them.